If you would turn to Luke chapter 21, we're working our way through the book of Luke, and we started last week looking at what the Lord Jesus has to say to us about the end times. So we're going to read verses 5 through 24 of Luke 21. But before we do that, let me just ask you a question. Have you ever thought about just how risky life is? Probably it's occurred to you at different times in your life, um, whether you're driving or whether you're getting married or whether you're just walking out your front door, you can be struck with how risky life can be. And of course, there are different kinds of risk and different levels of risk, so not all risk is the same. Um, It's like um, Bilbo Baggins said, it's a dangerous business photo going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept swept off to. And so we get up every day, uh, we get in our cars, we drive, we go to work or wherever we might go, and we feel like it's very routine, and yet the reality is uh, things happen that we never expected would happen uh, daughters show up from Maryland, and we never expected them to show up, which we're so very thankful for, and all kinds of things happen, unexpected things. And uh, the reality is that there's a sense in which uh, the passage we're about to look at is talking about risk, but it's also talking about opportunities, that uh, risk and opportunities often go together. And there's a little poem entitled Opportunities Missed, which goes like this. There was a very cautious man who never laughed or played. He never risked. He never tried. He never sang or prayed. And when he one day passed away, his insurance was denied. For since he never really lived, they claimed he never died. (laughs) And so that little ditty is talking about the reality of risk as well as opportunity and how they go together many, many times. And I hope you'll see why I've uh, introduced this question as we read this passage. So look with me at verse 5, and we'll begin in Luke 21 and see what the Lord has to say from his word uh, to us this morning. It says, And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, this is Jesus, As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first. But the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you. Delivering you to the synagogues and prisons. Bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds now not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. 
For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is the word of the Lord. Last week we looked at verses 5 through 9. Um, and at the beginning of this passage, we have the disciples asking the Lord Jesus a question about the temple. He makes the comment that this beautiful building that you see is not going to last forever. In fact, it's going to be torn down. And they ask the question, when is this going to happen? And what are the signs that will indicate that it's about to happen? And so he begins to talk in verses 8 and 9 about the importance of making sure they take responsibility for not being deceived and to not give themselves over to being afraid in light of all the things that are beginning to happen. And today we'll begin to look at verses 10 and following when he goes on to say to them that there are certain things that you can expect to happen. And so he begins talking about things that are going to happen in the future. And so he says, nation will rise against nation in verse 10, uh, kingdom against kingdom, there'll be earthquakes and various plagues and famines and terrors and great signs and all those kinds of things. If you go to the account in Mark and Matthew, the way these things are characterized is they're characterized as the beginning of birth pangs, which Becca might experience this week, we hope, right? And so these events are characterized as the beginning of things, not the end of things. They're the beginning of uh, the end, so to speak, but it's not really the end yet. These are things that must happen along the way before the end is going to come. Uh, there are those who would say that in the period between 60 A.D. and 80 A.D., the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., that there were a lot of things like this that happened then, that there were um, a lot of pestilence and fire and famine and hurricanes and earthquakes, even in that period of time. And we know that since then there have been plenty of those kinds of things as well. Uh, one author counted 300 wars in Europe during the last 300 years. And so you've got all kinds of wars, all kinds of famine and pestilences and all these kinds of things that could be identified right at the very beginning in the, t- in the first century, but have also taken place uh, since that time as well. When you think about prophecy, prophecy is one of the most difficult things to understand in the Bible and interpret. That's why there's such a wide range of opinion on what the Lord is trying to tell us uh, through these various things. 
um, it's helpful for me to, to see that there appears to be different ways in which the phrase the day of the Lord is used in the Old Testament and other phrases that are used in different ways so that you could argue that there are cycles in history that lead up to the final cycle, that there are birth pangs uh, of events, there are what do you call it when it gets harder in pregnancies? A transition, transitional things where it's tribulation type things. Then you've got the day of the Lord when this baby's coming type events. And it's with regard to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Lord was saying there are things that are going to happen that are like birth pangs. Then it's going to ramp up and then it's going to happen. And that that whole destruction of the, the temple and Jerusalem is a foreshadowing of what will happen in the future. There will be birth pangs of events, uh, intensification of tribulation, and then the coming of the Lord. And many would argue that there have been different things in history that have also fit that pattern. Some would say the destruction of Rome later on would have fit that pattern as well, so that God has a way of working in history that... uh, uh, in terms of smaller occasions, foreshadow the ultimate uh, return of Christ. I just share that to say that that's one way to understand all that's going on here. One question we have to ask is, why does the Lord tell us what he tells us here? Because there's plenty of things the Lord has not told us. So it's always a good question to ask, why did he tell us what he did tell us, in light of the fact there are plenty of things I'd like to know that he hasn't told us. And when I think about Joshua going into the promised land, uh, three different times in Joshua chapter 1, God tells Joshua to be courageous. Be courageous, be courageous. I'm going to be with you and you be courageous. I think the same kind of thing is going on here as God gives us the information we need, not for the sake of curiosity, but for the sake of courage that we might have courage when earthquakes hit, famines hit, uh, nations begin to go to war, and those kinds of things begin to happen. We need to know that God has told us ahead of time that we might have courage, that it's not taking him by surprise, and he doesn't want want it to take us by surprise either. I've shared a story before um, that someone wrote an account of that goes like this. The time was the 19th of May, 1780. The place was Hartford, Connecticut. The day has gone down in New England history as a terrible foretaste of Judgment Day. For at noon the skies turned from blue to gray, and by mid-afternoon had blackened over so densely that in that religious age men fell on their knees and begged a final blessing before the end came. The Connecticut House of Representatives was in session. And as some men fell down and others clamored for an immediate adjournment, the Speaker of the House, one Colonel Davenport, came to his feet. He silenced them all and said these words, The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that candles may be brought. I don't know if he was a believer or not, but what he said was, Whenever Christ returns, whether it's now or a thousand years from now, I want to be faithful doing my duty. I want to be about the Father's business. I want to be trusting 
God in the ways I'm to trust God. I want to be loving in the ways God calls me to love. And so that's why Jesus tells us what he tells us, not to satisfy our curiosity, but to give us courage to continue trusting in the ways he's called us to trust, to continue loving in the ways he's called us to love, regardless of what's happening around us. He goes on in verses 12 and following to talk about the fact that there's going to be difficult times for believers. He starts to talk about persecution. He says in verse 12, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. He's encouraging us as believers then and now not to be surprised by opposition. And it's important to realize that he says at the end of verse 12, that this persecution is going to come for my name's sake. Now, there's at least two ways we should understand that. It's going to come because of me. You're going to be persecuted because you have my name. You've taken my name in marriage, so to speak, by trusting me and entrusting yourself to me. You have my name, and therefore those who hate me will hate you. Those who would persecute me will persecute you. But also, it's the other sense would be, you're going to be persecuted for my glory. You're going to be persecuted for my purposes. You're going to be persecuted to accomplish what I want to see accomplished in this world. And that's why it goes on to say in verse 13, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. You could say that from God's perspective, persecution and suffering is a gospel strategy. On God's part, he gives his people over to suffering of various kinds and persecution kinds of suffering in particular that we might have an opportunity to share the gospel, that we might have an opportunity to identify with Christ in those circumstances. And he tells us that he's going to be with us. And the way he says that, he says in verse 14, so make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to to defend yourselves. The idea of the uh, words there, uh, do not prepare beforehand, is basically the idea of uh, don't write your speech out before it happens and don't rehearse it. Because God is going to give you the words to say and he will enable you to say what you need to say in those circumstances. I don't know about you, but I've always wondered how I would respond if I was in Syria or in China or in some other place where Christians are being persecuted, where they are being tortured, where they are being killed. I've wondered, how would I respond? Could I even get a word out of my mouth? Would my mouth be so dry, be scared, spitless? You know, what would what would be my response under those circumstances? And looking at myself, I would say, I'll probably wilt. I'll probably just crawl up in the corner and get into a fetal position. Now, why wouldn't we all think that we would do that? Because God says, I'll be with you, and I will enable you to stand up, and I'll enable you to speak, and I'll enable you to give testimony to me. It's not in me to stand up to torture. It's not in me to stand up to death. But uh, God in us will enable us in those circumstances. And yet he does say, he doesn't go so far as saying, you know what, and none of you will die. 
He goes on to say in verse 16, and they will put some of you to death. Some of you will give testimony to the point of death. Not all of you, but some of you. And in light of that, we have to ask ourselves, then why does he say in verse 18, yet not a hair of your head will perish? And there are different ways that people have tried to understand that, different ways people have tried to resolve those two things being put together. Some would say, uh, not a hair of your head will perish without the providence of God or without you getting a reward or before it's time for you, your, your hair to perish or, um, <laughs> or you will be saved spiritually but not physically or the church will survive even though you don't survive. Um, or God's sovereignty will determine the outcome, and there's some overlap in these these um, explanations, but they're all trying to wrestle with how do you put together some of you will die, but not a hair of any of you will perish. I personally believe it's highlighting ultimate perishing. Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That indeed, uh, we may die because we identify with Christ, but we will not perish. And there's a huge difference between dying and perishing. Uh, One of the most famous um, martyrs in the history of the church was Polycarp, uh, who was actually a disciple of the Apostle John. And you may know the story, but he was 86 years old, And uh, persecution was ramping up, and they began um, killing various Christians, and eventually they uh, wanted to see Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna, be killed. And there was actually um, an account. Those who eyewitnessed what took place uh, wrote an account of what took place, and it begins this way, or at least toward the beginning. It says, All the martyrdoms which God allowed to happen, remember that the devout will describe all things to his sovereignty, were blessed and noble, who could not admire admire their honor, their patience, their love for the Lord. They were whipped to shreds till their veins and arteries were exposed and still endured patiently, while even those that stood by cried for them. They had such courage that none of them let out a sigh or a groan, proving when they suffered such torments they were absent from their bodies, or rather that the Lord then stood by them and talked with them. It goes on to say, In the same way, those who were condemned to the wild beast endured dreadful torture. Some were stretched out on beds of spikes. Others were subjected to all kinds of torments, all in the devil's attempt to make them deny Christ. And all that the devil attempted, he failed. Thanks be to God. So there were many who were persecuted, tortured, died, during this time, around one in the early 100s, 160s, 150s, in that t- time frame, A.D. And then he begins to talk about Polycarp and what happened with him. And Polycarp, at the urging of his friends, went into hiding. He didn't really want to, but he followed his friend's advice. They uh, eventually found him because he was betrayed by some young friends of his who were tortured into confessing where he was. And when they found him, he just invited them in and served them a meal and said, can I pray for a while before you 
do what you've come here to do. And so evidently he prayed in front of them for about a couple hours. And uh, finally they shut that down and took him into the arena. And um, the proconsul there in the area urged him to... Um, deny Christ and basically say down with the atheists, referring to the Christians, because Christians didn't worship the Roman God, so they considered them atheists. And so they urged Polycarp to say down with the atheists, and so he looked at the people up in the stands, it's like a big stadium type, type thing filled with people who were, were not Christians, they were uh, worshipers of the Roman gods, and so he looks around and he waved his arm like this, and he says, down with the atheists. And of course, that was not what they wanted him to say, because it was just the opposite. And so they keep working with him and saying, you're 86 years old. You don't want to die like this, do you? And he says, 86 years I have served him, speaking of Jesus, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? He prayed right before they began to um, try to burn him at the stake. He said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, and every creature, and of all the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice, as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you, along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. To you, with him, through the Holy Ghost, be glory both now and forever. Amen. As the story goes, they tried to burn him, but the flame just went out around him and would not touch his body. And so they stuck a dagger in him, and the blood flowed and put out the fire, according to the story. He eventually died and went to heaven, and the testimony was a testimony that encouraged the church greatly as they saw him be faithful even to death. He had courage, and God was with him. And we should not think that he was unique, that God would be with him like that, but would not be with us. We should not think that he plays favorites like that. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, no matter how bad it gets, no matter what you must suffer for my name's sake, I will be with you just like I was with Polycarp. That's a huge encouragement to my fearful soul. Well, the last section here is verses 20 through 24, where Jesus uh, comes around to actually answering uh, more of the, the direct question that they were asked at the beginning, or he was asked at the beginning, when they asked him about the destruction of Jerusalem. So he's been talking about things that would lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem, And if you read the other passages in in Matthew and Mark, you realize that it must also extend beyond the destruction of Jerusalem as well. But he does directly address their question when he says in verse 20, 
But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city. And so he goes on to talk about the fact that it was going to be a terrible, terrible time. This actually happened in 70 AD. Uh, Depending on who you're talking to, they would say, The Lord Jesus was crucified and raised somewhere 30 to 33 A.D., so this is about 40 years later that this would have happened. And the Lord Jesus is actually counseling uh, the believers who are living at that time to do something that was the opposite of common practice. He says that when you see uh, the armies beginning to surround Jerusalem, You need to leave the city and get as far away from it as you can, essentially. That was just the opposite of what typically people would do in that day and time. Whenever invading armies would come into their country, people would actually rush into the city. And that's why they developed the whole idea of the siege, where they would just uh, camp around the city until people died of starvation and pestilence and everything else. Because it was the practice to run into the city, not to run out of the city. Even if you were living in the country, you would go to the city when uh, invading armies would come. And so the Lord Jesus actually counsels them, tells them to do something counterintuitive to what they would have commonly thought they should do. Now, I've wondered about these uh, phrases with regard to those who are pregnant or those who are nursing babies in those days and those kinds of things or or um, the idea of praying, you know, that it's not wintertime or the Sabbath. And you you wonder, what is the Lord Jesus' point? Is he really saying you need to make sure you're not pregnant when this happens? Um, make sure you're praying that it doesn't happen in the winter. Well, do I really have any control over, you know, when it happens? Is that what the Lord is going to determine? He's already... I got all this planned out. Um, I think what the Lord Jesus is saying is that it's going to be a really, really difficult time. And uh, so pray for grace. It's a, it's a, he's trying to paint the picture that this is going to be a very, very uh, terrible time in so many ways. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian of the time, said that 97,000 people were taken prisoner and over a million people people were killed as a result of the siege and the attack of the Romans on Jerusalem. He describes it this way in terms of the destruction of the temple that actually happened as Jesus said it would happen. As the Roman soldiers go into Jerusalem, it says, Then one of the soldiers, without awaiting any orders and with no dread of so momentous a deed, but urged on by some supernatural force, snatched a blazing piece of wood and climbing up on another soldier's back, hurled the flaming brand through a low golden window that gave access on the north side to the rooms that surrounded the sanctuary. As the flames shot up, the Jews let out a shout of dismay that matched The tragedy. And he goes on to talk about how the Romans, after setting fire to the temple, just went through the city, slaughtering everyone, whether they were men, women, boys, girls, whatever. And that they were climbing over people. It's just heaps and heaps of people who were killed in this very, very terrible um, judgment of God. You notice it says these are days of vengeance. 
which means in, on the one hand, the Romans were not taking vengeance on the, on the Jews in terms of divine vengeance. They might have been taking vengeance in terms of they hated the Jewish people because they were rebelling. And so they took maybe a form of human vengeance, but the scripture is talking about divine vengeance here, and that God was using the Roman army to bring judgment on the temple, Jerusalem, the Jewish people for rejecting Jesus during their time of visitation. God had come in the person of his son, and they rejected him. They crucified him, and this was God's divine judgment on them for that. Well, with the time that we have left here, what I wanted to do, there's, there's a lot in this passage that we could talk about, but I want to make some application for us, even beyond what we've already said. With regard to uh, the idea of depending, last week we talked about the fact that the way the Lord Jesus uh, speaks in the first verses, he's encouraging us to make sure that we give ourselves to the scriptures, that we don't let ourselves be misled, that we don't let ourselves just be overwhelmed with fear and panic. And how do you do that? You do that by um, immersing yourself in the truth of the word of God so that you see life and you hear what people say and you see what's happening around you in light of what the scripture says, that we need to think biblically and we need to fight to... um, see the scriptures uh, as our rule for how we understand what's going on around us. The second thing that I believe the Lord Jesus encourages us to do in light of all that he's talking about here, regardless of where we might be on the eschatological timeline, is to cultivate more and more a dependence on God. When you think about what he says in verse 14, when he says, So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves when you're being persecuted. That means basically depend on me. Don't depend on your ability to come up with something really good to say or depend on your ability to do what you need to do in that circumstance. Ultimately, he's saying trust me, depend on me to give you the words to say as well as whatever grace you need for whatever you need to face. Depend on me. And it goes back again to Polycarp as an example that... In order to stand up knowing that they're about to burn you at the stake and not just be overwhelmed with panic, fear, or be tempted to turn your back on Christ, God is going to give us the grace to say things like, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? It's the same kind of thing Paul is talking about, I believe, in Philippians 4. What he's talking about... Um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, when I was in college going to LSU, I'd use that verse before I took a test. And that's okay, but that's not really what Paul is talking about here. Uh, If you look at verse 12, Philippians 4, he says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In this context, he's saying I can have plenty to eat and plenty to wear and all that I need, or I can be destitute and have nothing to eat, nothing to wear, and I'll be okay either way. 
Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can not be suffering or I can be suffering. And I have all that I need in Christ. And so when he says, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret. What is the secret? The secret is a person. The secret is Jesus. I have what I need. And no matter what God might lead us into, Jesus will be right there with us, and he will enable us to do what we need to do and bear testimony to him. Uh, Whether it be in a hospital or whether it be uh, in another country fighting for your country, uh, whatever it may be, uh, God can enable us to bear testimony to him and be faithful to him And we can trust him for that. He's promised that to us. But I also want you to see that he also says that we can depend on God not only for words of testimony and the strength we need to suffer well, but also depend on God for rescue from wrath. Because in verses 20 through 24, the Lord Jesus is telling the believers at at that time when the temple is going to be destroyed what to do. He tells them to flee in verse 21. And he says that they are to flee. Why? Because in verse 23, there's going to be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. So what is he saying? I'm going to deliver you from the wrath to come. I came to deliver you from the wrath to come. And this is how I'm going to deliver you from this uh, little W wrath to come. Because there's a big W wrath to come. And... I rescue my people from wrath, the divine wrath. Not the wrath of the Romans, but the wrath of God. That's what he's talking about. We may be persecuted and suffer the wrath of man, but as Christians we will not suffer the wrath of God. That's why Jesus came. He came to take that wrath for us. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 5, these verses help us see this as well. First Thessalonians 5, 8 through 11. There are Christian historians, Christian historians like Eusebius who talk about um, what happened in 70 AD and say things like on, that the people of Jerusalem in the church there were commanded by an oracle given by the revelation before the war to those in the city who are worthy of it to depart and dwell in one of the cities of Perea, which is called Pella. So um, it appears that the believers who were in that area during that time went to Pella, which was across the Jordan and northeast of Jerusalem, and they escaped the wrath that came upon Jerusalem. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, it says, But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. What is encouragement? It's giving people courage in their circumstances that they're going through. That's what encourage means. It's helping people to have courage to continue trusting God and loving in 
their circumstances. And so the, the truth that we may, we may incur the wrath of man, but we will not incur the wrath of God. And there's no comparison between the two. Uh, Polycarp would say, and he did say, according to the accounts, that your fire is nothing compared to God's fire. I'd much rather go through your fire and your wrath than God's wrath. And so we can be thankful that because of Jesus, we are rescued from that. Now, the last thing, last application is we can depend on God in light of the risk involved. In verses 16 and 17 of Luke 21, he says, You'll be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you'll be hated by all because of my name. If we think about what the Lord Jesus is saying, he's saying that following him can be risky business. We might be betrayed. We might suffer. We might have to die. Uh, Relationships might be lost as a result of following Christ. So the question is, in light of that risk, how should we, maybe in a broader sense, think about walking by faith? Well, I was thinking about this week, that that whole thing, because I don't know about you, but personally, I tend to think that that avoiding risk is a wise thing to do. You know, that if something looks risky, maybe the best thing is not to do it. You know, why jump out of a plane when you don't have to or, or whatever. Um, so risk for me just naturally seems like a bad thing. And the more you're prone to anxiety or fear, I think you're probably more in my, my camp, that kind of thing. Um, but it's helpful to think about the fact that Jesus is talking about the fact that following him is risky business. So what does faith look like? when following him is risky. Well, there's, if you think about a road and there's a ditch on either side of the road, one ditch of walking by faith in Jesus would be what I'd call the, di- the ditch of foolishness, which says we do whatever we want to do regardless of the risk involved. It's kind of like there, back in 1982, there was this piece of art that had a, a chair and a shotgun attached to it, a loaded shotgun with a timer on it. And it was time to go off within the, sometime within the next 100 years. And so you could sit in that chair and look down the barrel of that shotgun for a, a minute at a time if you wanted to, to just see if maybe you'd be sitting there when the gun went off. And people lined up to sit in that chair to gamble, to take the risk that, you know, this is exciting, maybe to go off when I'm in there, but hopefully it won't. You know, that's what I would call a foolish risk to take. That would not be the kind of risk that Jesus is calling us to. That would be that ditch of foolishness, doing whatever we want regardless of the risk involved. But there's another side of the road where there's another ditch, and that ditch would be faithlessness. And that means not doing anything until there seems to be no real risk involved. So I'm just going to wait until everything's good and there's really no real risk involved in it and I'll, I'll be fine. Well, that kind of attitude, I think, 
Theodore Roosevelt kind of addressed when he said this. He said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotion, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. So what I'm saying is it ties to the idea that there's risk involved that is tied to opportunity. And you, if you avoid the risk, you also avoid the opportunity, whatever that may be. And so there's ditches on either side of the road of faith. So what is the road of faith? How do we define that? And one way I think we can define it in light of the idea of risk is to say, walking by faith in Jesus is doing what is right, which means according to the scriptures, and what seems wise, all things considered, including the scriptures, Trusting God and his promises in the face of the unknown. There's plenty of the unknown around us, even when there is real risk involved. So I'm not just doing whatever I want to do, no matter the risk involved, but I'm also at the same time not waiting till, until there's no risk involved. I'm asking myself, what is the right thing to do? And what is the wise thing to do, even if there's risk involved? Um, there's someone who said, behold the turtle. He makes progress only when he sticks his neck out. (laughs) Hudson Taylor, the uh, famous missionary to China, said, unless there is an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. So there's an element of risk. We're not talking about being foolhardy. We're not talking about doing whatever I want to do. I'm talking about what does God call me to do that's right and calls and how am I to walk wisely in this world even when it is risky, which brings me to the last point, which is this. Is he worthy? There's a great song by Andrew Peterson which most of you probably heard that goes like this. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. There's this refrain. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave, he was David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? He is. Does the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit move among us? He does. And does Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those he loves? He does. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? 
Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave, he is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. From every people and tribe, every nation and tongue, he has made us a kingdom and priest to God to reign with his Son. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Of all blessing and honor and glory. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of this? Is he worthy of the kind of calamities that Jesus said would come and to endure them? Is he worthy of all kinds of suffering and persecution and hatred? Is he worthy of taking risks to do what is right, to do what is wise and for the glory of God? And the Bible says, and all creation says, and the church says, he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We pray that you would encourage our hearts in light of what you've told us because you've given it to us that we might take courage, that we might wait on you and trust you and not be afraid, that we might know that whatever this day holds, you hold us and you hold this day and you will be with us and your grace is sufficient. Help us to believe that all of life And every risk we might take is worthy of you because you are infinitely worthy of our trust and love and praise and adoration. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.